I remind the House that this is the Honourable Member's first speech, and I ask the House to extend to them the usual courtesies. From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. The federal election marked a change in direction for the country, but it also signalled the beginning of 35 new political careers. As Parliament returns, many of these newly elected politicians are making their first speeches, a permanent record of their intentions that their actions in Canberra will be compared against. So what are they saying? And what do their speeches tell us about the challenges facing Australia right now? Today, writer and contributor to The Monthly, Sean Kelly, on first speeches, optimism and compromise. It's Tuesday, September 6. Hi, Sean. How are you? Good, Ruby. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, Thanks for coming on the show once again. Thanks for having me, as always. So, Sean, we've passed 100 days since the election, and as a result of that federal election, there is now a whole cohort of new politicians who are entering parliament for the very first time. Could you tell me a bit about who these people are and and how different the makeup of our parliament is now as a result? Look, it's significantly different. It was, was a fascinating election for this reason. It was fascinating to see candidates from a greater array of backgrounds, and it's incredible to see that that has reached the parliament. Both the House and the Senate have more women than ever before, Four new Indigenous MPs have joined the seven Indigenous MPs who are already in the parliament. We have only listened to a a fraction of the maiden speeches so far, but already new members have talked of their own or their parents' lives in Laos, in Sri Lanka and Kenya. David Pocock is not deaf or hearing impaired, but he arranged for a TV screen to be hung so that his speech could be translated in Auslan. I think there there is both a much greater diversity of candidates, candidates from a a more multifaceted set of backgrounds and a greater awareness of, of, I guess, how narrow our parliament has been previously. And I think both of those elements uh, are really important. I want to dedicate my first speech to my ama, my maternal grandmother. She was the most remarkable woman. Ama was a widower and a single mother of eight. She had to uproot her life twice, first China to Laos and then Laos to Australia. I think about her often because... Sally Situ, in her first speech, uh, said, as I look around our House of Representatives today, it feels like it is starting to live up to its name. And the last photo I have with her is on the dance floor at my wedding in Laos. Amar stayed on in Laos after the wedding, choosing to spend her final years there. It was one of the few choices she had an opportunity to make. It's because of her and the sacrifices she has made that my life was possible. Where a world of opportunities has been unlocked for me. The the parliament has quite a a way to go. It it is certainly more white and more male still than the country as a whole. Mm, Absolutely. It feels like a shift, but also that it really is only the beginning one of the first things that, that happens is these people make the transition from their ordinary lives to their new roles as political representatives is they make their first speech to parliament. And this is really them 
putting on the parliamentary record the reasons that they're there and and what it is that they hope to achieve. You've watched many of these speeches. Can you tell me what it is that that interests you about these first statements that politicians make? I think in a way the the thing that fascinates me most about watching and reading and listening to the speeches is the sense of hope that emanates from them. Together, we can solve wicked problems of our time. A secure economy will play a vital role in our journey to net zero. We're building the infrastructure of the lives we share. We'd better do it well. We'd better do it responsively and responsibly. And that goes for MPs across the political spectrum. You know, you don't have to agree with someone's politics when when you listen to these speeches to pick up the note of hope. Because only by unifying, empowering and electrifying our people can we reach that cleaner, greener, fairer future. The, The note of belief that they are there to do something new and something different. And, you know, there is a lot of cynicism about politics and that is, in my view, mostly justified a little uh, despairingly. But I do think a lot of politicians go into politics for the right reasons and maiden speeches, first speeches, are this this beautiful moment in a sense where you, where you can see the purity of those MPs' intentions. Mm. And you make the observation in your piece that the the brutal truth of these first speeches is that we only really look back at them when they're given by the the particular politicians that do actually go on to to achieve fame to become the prime minister to to change the country. Yeah, I mean one of the strange things about looking at the first speeches of all these MPs is is realizing the the poignancy of the fact that most of them will be forgotten. Most of them will be fairly quickly forgotten except by the very people who delivered them. We we tend to look only at the, the maiden speeches, the first speeches later on of those politicians who go on to become significant. But if you if you look at the first speeches of an entire generation of politicians, then you do get some sense of what was going on in Australia at that time. Mm. And I do want to talk to you about what the speeches of 2022 as a whole tell us about where we're at right now at the country. But before I do, with the idea of of political legacy in mind, what is it that we glean when we go back and we look at those first speeches from people who did go on to become great politicians? How do first speeches give us an insight into what they were like at the very beginning of their careers? I think in a sense we tend to read them backwards. We look at what happened in their political careers later on and then we go back to look for clues of those things in their early speeches. So in some senses our, our view of them remains quite narrow, but nevertheless fascinating. If you look at Bob Hawke's first speech, I think certainly the most compelling aspect of it now, reading it backwards, as I say, is how much of that speech he spends talking about poverty and the chances of eliminating poverty. And that sticks with us because he made that famous pledge years later in his prime ministership to eliminate child poverty, obviously very much undelivered. So there's a there's a, a poignancy and an, an irony, I suppose, to hearing him talk so much about that issue. In John Howard's, you get this real sense of, of his personality as a politician. It's a very dry speech. It's a very purposeful speech. And, you know, there is a focus on taxation arrangements with the states, which is something not a lot of new MPs are talking about in their first speech to the parliament. 
if you look at Anthony Albanese's speech, you know, there are bits that drop away now for us. He spends a great deal of it talking about aircraft noise in his electorate and the fact that the no aircraft noise campaign fell down. Obviously, uh, that doesn't feel very relevant, but then he, he talks about what he believes as well. And I think those things are always useful as you watch a prime minister's career. But for me, the most moving effort was he says his election to the House, he was quite young when he was elected to Parliament, was the result of a collective effort. First, I would like to thank my mother, Marianne Albanese, who raised me under very difficult economic circumstances. He thanks his mother, he thanks his mentor, Tom Uren, very important to him, and he thanks his future wife, Carmel Tebbit. They have, I hope, installed in me a sense of history and purpose to my activity in the Labor movement and now as a parliamentarian. By the time he becomes Prime Minister, only Carmel Tebbit is still alive to see that, and, and by then uh, they're divorced or, or their marriage is over. So, you know, there's a, there's a real dramatic irony when you look at the speeches of these great figures because they don't know what's coming. They are as powerless to predict the future as, as you or me. And uh, I think the speeches attain a sort of uh, majesty from that fact. We'll be back after this. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When I was five, I visited Parliament House. The only thing I remember is that in the cafe, I saw a man eating a banana with a knife and fork. <laughs> it was very intimidating and a little bit strange. <laughs> a little bit like this week has been. I never thought that I would end up here. Sean, coming back to the group of politicians, is there a collective noun for a group of politicians? <laughs> the deception of politicians. <laughs> I love it. Um, coming back to, to those politicians who have made their first speeches to Parliament over the last few weeks, listening to, to what they had to say, what sense did you get about the, the common challenges that we face, the feeling of, of where the country is at this moment in time? Well, in, in a sense, the, the focus of many of them, especially the, the Teals, told us what we already knew from the election. Climate change was very important. Integrity was very important. A focus on gender equality was very important. Climate change in particular played a major role in speeches uh, across the political spectrum. In some senses, to me, what was most interesting about that was how difficult it was for anybody to make rhetorical points about climate really memorable. There were, there were, some, there were some sharp lines 
Senator Mascarenas talked about the fact that what we call natural disasters are really unnatural. We can't call these natural disasters anymore. Humankind has had a role to play. Zoe Daniel, uh, I think, really, really got me when she said to our young, well, our kids, our, our babies, babies. I'm sorry. Sorry that your generation is going to pay the price for the failure of those who've come before you, for failing to make government take the action we need to future-proof our nation and the globe from the devastating impact of climate change on your lives and those of your children. I think the simplicity of that apology is really quite moving. You know, there's this rhetoric in the parliament, especially from Labor right now, about ending the climate wars. And what David Pocock had a great line when he said he didn't just want to end the climate wars, he wanted to win them. We win them and we start to lead as a country on climate action and biodiversity conservation. So there were some sharp lines, but overall, because everybody was talking about the same topic, it all really blurred together. And I think in a way that highlights uh, one of the difficulties facing the climate movement, especially the climate movement in politics. And when everyone is talking about the same thing, when everybody is using broadly similar rhetoric, does it, does it stand out? Does it reach us? Does it make us more likely to listen or do we end up closing our ears uh, because it's just the same thing over and over? So I've, I found that uh, an interesting thing to experience. I think you know, while these speeches definitely tell you what is already in the zeitgeist and in some senses aren't surprising, the thing that we can't know, and this is why these first speeches are important, the thing we can't know is how these particular individuals will handle the challenges that are thrown at them, will handle these topics. We don't know the way that the climate discussion will develop over the next decade in politics. We don't know what results will come out of it. We don't know the types of legislation that will be passed, the types of uh, actions these politicians engage in. And for me, this is, this is always the case with, with politics. When I ask myself, why, why am I interested in politics? And, and often I'm not, but when I am, it's because you look at the way the moment meets the people who are alive within that moment. Mm. And it's true, isn't it, that people don't always know exactly how they're going to respond in the moment. You had the example in your piece of, of Stephen Bates, his first speech, and, and the ways in which he delivered it, probably not matching to how he imagined he would you know, present his first words to Parliament. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we gather on here today. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a... I think it's a lovely metaphor for what goes on in politics in general. Stephen Bates, a, a young, new MP, stood up, gave, gave a, a moving speech. I spent my teenage years knowing I was gay and doing everything in my power to hide it. I told myself I would force myself to get married to a woman, have kids and live in the suburbs. Because that is what you did. That is what you had to do. That is what was expected of me. I was lucky enough to have a very supportive... Sorry. And he tears up. To have a very supportive family to come out to. But and he tears up several times and he has to pause and, and regain his composure and he finds it quite difficult to get through uh, the middle part of his speech. But I spent years hiding myself because I could not see anyone in my world who was openly gay. This is so much harder than I thought it would be. <laughs> I made a promise to myself. Once I came out, 
that if I ever, thank you, found myself in a public role, that I would be open and proud of who I am, hence all the rainbow gear. (laughs) That I would be that person that I never saw growing up. And he would not have intended that beforehand. Uh, he would have wanted to, to deliver that speech straight through, probably you know, confidently and smoothly. And you can imagine that he's quite a quite a confident, smooth deliverer. But um, but he didn't. And the speech is much more memorable for that. And I think that is important always to remember about politics. You have certain intentions. You don't necessarily deliver on those intentions. That is not always a bad thing. Sean, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Ruth. Thank you. I thank the House. I commend my speech to the House. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Also in the news today... Two men are suspected of carrying out a stabbing frenzy that has left 10 dead and 15 wounded in two remote Indigenous communities in Canada. The Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations, which represents First Nations groups in the Saskatchewan province, said in a statement, Our heart breaks for all of those impacted. It's one of the deadliest mass killings in Canadian history. And Liz Truss has been announced as the new leader of the Conservative Party in the UK, and will be sworn in as Prime Minister, replacing Boris Johnson. Ms Truss was elected by Conservative members after promising £30 billion in tax cuts. She recently said she doesn't believe the goal of taxation should be wealth redistribution. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.